everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. For this episode of Jim's Velt, I talked with historian and scholar and former IRA gunman, Anthony McIntyre. We discussed what it was like for him growing up in Belfast in a war zone during the Troubles. Anthony talked very candidly with me about committing murder and getting sent away for 17 years to the infamous Long Cash Detention Center where he met the likes of Bobby Sands and actually participated in the now legendary protests that went on there. Naturally, we talk about masturbation because, hey, we got to talk about masturbation always on this program, right? And we also talk about the now infamous and controversial Belfast tapes that actually got Jerry Adams detained last year. I really can't thank Anthony enough. It was an amazing, amazing talk, and I greatly appreciate his time. So here it is, my talk with Anthony McIntyre. So take me back, man, to Belfast during the Troubles, because I think there's a whole entire generation of people out there that just don't have any sense of what Belfast was like in the 1970s. Well, Belfast in the 1970s was a, a very dangerous, but for a young person, a very exciting place to be growing up in. It was a place where political violence was rampant. Uh, the British state, the IRA, the, the loyalist uh, militias were all involved in a three-way, uh, three-dimensional conflict on the streets. Many, many young people were, to use the current term, were radicalized as a result of British state repression on, on the ground. And a lot of this repression is coming to view today as the, the British state's involvement is being shown uh, to have been something other than a, a, a peacekeeping neutral force. More and more evidence is coming forward to show that rather than fighting terrorism, they were waging terrorism. So in that, we grew up in that environment uh, where arrests, killings, shootings, rats, bombings were a daily occurrence. There wasn't a day that I remember from my early teenage days that we didn't hear an explosion in Belfast from one of the IRA bomb attacks uh, on occasionally the, the Loyalist bomb attacks. Yeah, quite big British military presence on, on, on the streets, constantly in conflict with the youth, uh, harassing young people, arresting young people, hunting out beatings, and, and continuously alienating a community. So you had that environment of growing up in a very... Uh, volatile, conflictual situation, and a young person is very easily attracted to the the righteousness of the cause. Do you see any similarities between Muslim fanaticism, what's going on today, and what you guys were experiencing back then? Well, I, I never seen a great deal of fanaticism uh, on the part of the IRA. Obviously, there were people who were fanatics because you get them everywhere, just as there were people who, who, who were psychopaths. Oh, yeah. I'm from New York. <laughs> yeah, when you've seen a lot of them there. <laughs> if you ever ride the subway, yeah. <laughs> well, and and they're the sort of people that they, they put in the British Army. I took them off the subways of London and sent them over to keep peace or maintain peace in the streets of the north. It was a, a, a sick joke. But uh, are there comparisons and are there similarities? I often wonder about this. I, I think to some extent there are many comparisons because I, I think it's impossible to rule out as a motivating factor the type of actions that are carried out uh, by the US and British forces and the, and the French. But I also think that we need to 
try and measure that and not go too far. And they have to bear in mind just how much the ideological, as distinct from the response to repression, feeds into Islamist political violence and political Islam outside of imperialism, outside of invasions, outside of a government's foreign policy, is a very dangerous and a very manipulative force that is gravely destructive. So in that way, I think there's vast differences, despite whatever similarities, where there's vast differences between ISIS and, say, the IRA. Instead of ideological reasons why people joined the IRA back then, a lot of people were just joining because they were pissed off. They had nothing yep. to do. Is that what inspired you to join the IRA? Well, I, did, I didn't join out of boredom. There, there was a sense of excitement, yeah, when we joined. And, and there's always for the young person I mean, that sense of adventure and excitement. But the, the constant conflict that molds a young person and the thinking that what they were doing was right was deeply grounded within the, the strategies of the British state. I mean, young people were getting attacked. Young people like myself have been arrested. Uh, people who I thought were of a similar view as me, uh, people from na- nationalist Catholics were being shot dead in the streets, uh, were being attacked by the British Army. The dominant factor that drew so many people together in a social protest movement against the British state and against armed unionism was, in my view, repression on the streets. Lots of people throughout Europe and throughout America are bored, but they do not jump on the first organization that comes along and takes up, take up arms against the government. So when you joined up, how long were you in the IRA before you began to become active? Immediately. Yeah, when you join the IRA, you become active immediately, particularly in 1973. Soon I was on the run from the authorities and then I captured and absconded or skipped from a a juvenile detention center and recaptured, brought into Crumlin Road Prison, back out a year and a half later, and then uh, arrested again in IRA activity, sentenced to life, and served 17 years during which I was on the No Weiss and Blanket protests. The IRA was in those days, although in later years it became a place where people could sit in cushy numbers, as they call it, comfortable positions, uh, hiding in the departments or hiding in the security department which was sometimes labelled the don't-go-to-jail squad. But back in the early 1970s, when you come into the IRA, you were expected uh, to do things. If you didn't want to do things, you could have joined what were called the IRA auxiliaries, which was a sort of defence backup force that, that would have assisted the IRA but would not have been primarily responsible for IRA operations. But people like myself who joined the ranks of the IRA, uh, yeah, were uh, almost immediately involved. And IRA activities. So you knew exactly what you were getting into. It was no surprise. No, I, I, I knew and I thought it was right. I, I believed it was right. I mean, I never had any moral qualms in terms of uh, thinking that to, to kill a policeman or to kill a soldier was actually wrong. Uh, it was always a matter of why one has a, the, the proper amount of courage, not where one has morality on their side, because we always felt that we have morality on our side against these people. I mean, and to go back to a point that you made earlier when you're suggesting for discursive purposes or whether or not there's a comparison between the IRA and the likes of the Islamists, I, I, I would argue that the closest resemblance of any action here to the Paris attacks was carried out not by the IRA, but carried out by the British Army on Bloody Sunday in 1972 when they came onto the streets and slaughtered an unarmed civilian population, that is more like anything that happened in Paris than than anything that the IRA ever did. Now, looking back, 
what got you sent away for life was the the shooting or the murder of Kenneth Lonigan. Do you think that was justified? Well, I mean, one never likes to say, I never like to say that uh, killing people are justified. I mean, I, I just think there's a certain arrogance about it. I think there's arrogance about the term uh, legitimate target. Was the IRA campaign justified? I, I think the, the best thing can be said, there are huge measures of um, mitigation that must be applied when considering it. Uh, was it criminal? No, it wasn't. Was it the strategically wise? No, it wasn't strategically wise, Eller. But uh, was the death of Kenneth Lanahan uh, justified? I would hate to say to Kenneth Lanahan's family, yes, I had the right to kill your family member, your father, or your, your loved one. But I do say at the time of the conflict, Kenneth Lanahan was a combatant. I was a combatant. He was a member of the Ulster Volunteer Force. I was a member of the IRA. And there were mitigating circumstances, which will always have to be factored into any moral evaluation of the type of actions that were carried out at that time. How old were you when this happened? 18. 18 years old? Yeah. You were 18 years old. And did they order you to do it? Or did, or did you actually pick out the target? No, well, I was a, an IRA volunteer at the time. I was the sort of uh, the, the IRA commander in the lower armor road. I had prison experience. I had IRA experience behind me. I was considered, even though at 18, something of a veteran because people who come out of prison and reported back into the IRA and who were preferred to carry out IRA operations were regarded as veterans, old hands, even though we were 18. And I was quite prepared to do it. I mean, there were parameters set down, but we were eager for operations. I mean, on the night was I, I mean, the, the IRA had said that it needed things done, but in terms of uh, uh, procuring a council and implementing planning, uh, the execution of the, 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 the action, though, I, I, I was up to my neck on it and a willing participant. I mean, the IRA could not force you to do anything against your will. It couldn't force you to go out and kill. It was a volunteer organization. If you didn't want to be a gunman for the IRA, you simply didn't be one. You just pulled out. So you went in there willingly. Did you know you were shooting at him? Because I read it was in front of a bar, and then you just shot out the car. Did you know exactly you were shooting at him, or you just shooting at the crowd? We knew the the, the, the person who we had been down to target. You know, we, we, we had a description I mean, I won't go into the details leading up to on the same night because we're always open still to prosecution. And Lord knows there's a lot of that going on now. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't want to get you caught up. What I would say is, is that the target of, of the attack died, but there were a number of people who were not targets were also injured in, in the attack. Uh, and Kenneth Lenahan would have been the, the, the uh, target, uh, and he died. So when, when that judge read the sentence... Life in prison. And what went through your mind? Probably little. We just decided to laugh at him. Yeah, I heard that. You laughed at him. It was just a sort of uh, flipping the board at him, as the Americans said. Right. You know, that, that was basically all that. I mean, in, in later years, I, I, I thought about it. And, you know, given the sort of the, the fact that family, we had lost a loved one. A laughing in court at that sort of thing wasn't an appropriate response. But this is what you do when you're 19. You have a little empathy. Because you think, oh, my God, my life is over. You had no idea that you were going to be able to get out 17 years later. Oh, well, I, 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 I wasn't thinking of staying in jail for 17 years. We were off the view at the IRA with a secure uh, an outcome uh, at some point, and we didn't think we were going to do that amount of time in jail. I haven't said that. I mean, we, we knuckled down and we're quite prepared to do it. We had to uh, get through it as best we could. So you go away to, to Law and & Cash, and then – while you're there, you start having these protests. 
the blanket protest started in September 1976 when Kieran Nugent uh, refused to wear a prison uniform. And this, uh, he was asked to wear a prison uniform because in the 1st of March 1976, the British had decided that overnight people would magically become criminals, that they were no longer political prisoners, and they were, we just had a sort of uh, an aggravated crime wave in Ireland. Uh, and I mean, as, and as the, the Republican News wrote in 1971, it's funny how all the countries Britain invaded suddenly become filled with criminal types. Uh, and basically anybody that's politically challenged as a British state uh, was labelled a criminal. And uh, so this was resisted, and we ended up on a, a blanket protest. I mean, I wasn't subject to that initially. I had an, uh, an escape attempt, which failed, and then I lost. They deprived me of my political status and put me under the hate splits. I refused to wear the uniform, and I prison uniform, and I ended up on the protest along with the rest of, of the people. Uh, a very harrowing time. And this status, this special status, it separated regular prisoners from a political prisoner. You guys were able to wear your own clothes. You guys get food parcels. You get extra visits. I mean, it was a big deal, especially someone that's serving a life bit in jail. It was a big deal, but I mean, even had we have accepted the conditions that were on offer at the time, we could have made prison life pretty easy. We had the numbers to make it pretty easy, even wearing the uniform and supposedly conforming. But it was the significance, the symbolism of the British being allowed to criminalize the Irish struggle that mattered. Now, one of the most important figures during these protest movements was Bobby Sands. Bobby Sands became a global icon. I mean, Nelson Mandela in Robbins Island talked about how Bobby Sands influenced him all across Europe. There were protests when he died after 66 days. He went on a hunger strike. Did you meet him? In prison? Yes, I, I did meet Bobby in prison. I didn't know him well. I met him on a couple of occasions. And funny enough, the last time that I, I met him and spoke to him was uh, on the night of the 18th of December, 1980, when he arrived to tell us that the first strike had collapsed. And at that stage, myself and my cellmate were on hunger strike four days. We had come on as the backup wave for the seven men who were in hunger strike in the hospital at this time. So Bobby came in and told us what happened and uh, we had a brief conversation about it. Uh, I, I didn't know him particularly well, but I met him. The most amazing thing was he actually won a British parliamentary seat when he was in jail. Yes, and I suppose, well, it, it had happened before. There was a precedent for it, but I actually think now, this isn't a criticism of the hunger strike, but I think if that was the time that we should have ended the hunger strike the day that Bobby won the seat, because that was a clear political endorsement. That was political status. After that, we could have went into the system as Brandon Hughes had always advocated and destroyed it from within. Bobby Sands was a very talented man, immensely talented, could have made a massive contribution to society, had, had, had he come out of prison. And, I mean, all that has, uh, the chance for that has been lost uh, because of the hunger strike. And, uh, and ultimately, what did we get when we think about it? We have Sinn Féin standing shoulder to shoulder with the British establishment. It's sad, you know, and the people like, good people like Bobby Sands lost their lives. And I always keep going back and saying, for what? So you missed the entire 1980s, which might not be that bad a deal because the music was eh and the haircuts were horrible. So you didn't really miss that much. Well, I suppose we, could have, we, we, we probably have missed anything. It probably been the sex, but there, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that that sucked. I mean, when you say that it sucked, we would argue it was the opposite. It didn't suck, and that was the problem. <laughs>
<laughs> that's all right. You wish it sucked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's probably the worst thing for a young person ever. I, I would go insane masturbating every day. You know what I mean? I just I wouldn't be able to handle myself. But I have a question for you. How can you masturbate every day and not be able to handle yourself? There seems to be a contradiction in terms. <laughs> you have to handle yourself or somebody else is handling you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but no. Anyway, anyway, facetiousness is sad. Yes. Yes, you're right. And there are the things that people miss out on. And I mean, I look back and I, I don't regret uh, my, my time in prison. And, and I don't sit thinking, uh, you know, this has been... Uh, terrible uh, because I think of the people who never made it, who never got out, who, who died in the streets, you know. And then I came out and uh, I met a, an American woman and she sort of many ways took my life off in a completely new different direction. So a whole new life opened up to me, uh, which I, I can't say. Uh, there's been lots of disappointments, obviously, the way things turned out with Boston College and everything else, but overall, I can't sit down and mope and say, oh, woe was me. I lost an awful lot. I lived a different life. That's how I believe it. That's how I describe it. Is that when you started becoming critical of the IRA's direction around that time when you got out of uh, prison? I was suspicious that they were lying to us in the prison about the, the, the direction of the movement. I just never trusted the, the, the IRA leadership. I never trusted the Sinn Féin leadership. When the Good Friday Agreement came, I decided that I would leave the Republican movement because we have to in some situations, in many situations, accept defeat. I mean, the men in 1916 surrendered because they accepted defeat, but they didn't celebrate it. Here were we, the, the famed provisional Republican movement, the bane of the British establishment, the bane of the official Republican reformists, and now we were up doing everything that we had cursed everybody else for doing. So you moved away from the IRA when the Good Friday Agreement was, was written. Yep. And you've been critical of all the splinter groups, too, that have come off of that, like the real IRA. I mean, you call them make-believe IRA. Have you ever been threatened by these people? People seem to be pissed off with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I've a habit of pissing off people. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that I do with my wife on a regular basis. And right. I think, I'm married. I know. We, we piss off a lot of people. I mean, we, we pissed off political Islam. We've pissed off the Islamic clerics. We've pissed off the... The censors, uh, the people who want censored, we've, we've pissed off Jack Dunn and Boston College because we made a stand against them when they decided to lie and manipulate and cave in. Uh, we've pissed off Sinn Féin and we have pissed off the distance, but, uh, and of course the British. <laughs> yeah, but they're a given. <laughs> yeah, we, we pissed off the, the Dublin government as well at times. But look, and we, we don't set out to be professional piss takers that piss off everybody. We simply try to offer credible, accurate analysis, and I'm sure we've been wrong on many occasions, but we have never, ever put out anything that we believe to be wrong. I may have later come to the view, uh, no, you didn't get that right, but what we do is we try to enhance public understanding. And in the course of doing that, you come up against the powerful and you come up against the institutional lie and you come up against the, the people who will want to use any opportunity to suffocate and gag you from expressing an opinion that they feel may be harmful to their position or their political career or whatever agenda they have. 
Yeah, because I mean, a lot of the um, leaders during that time in Good Friday Agreement, I read in some magazine that they came to your house and actually, quote unquote, invited you to stop talking. On many occasions, they have tried to, uh, they've invited me to desist from my criticism of them. The, probably the most sharpest antagonism came was when the provisional IRA murdered Joseph O'Connor, who was a member of the real IRA. Myself and another man, Thomas Gorman, wrote an article in the Irish News in which we identified the provisional IRA as the authors of the attack. And we also criticised it and we made a very strong statement in which we said never again should Republicans take life or use the gun in pursuit of Republican goals. That wasn't good enough for Sinn Féin. What they decided to do was defend uh, the murder of Joe Connor, and they did this by lying about it. The IRA put out a statement saying that it was not responsible. A woman who became Sinn Féin councillor for West Belfast, the area in which Joe Connor was murdered, led the protests at our home, and they walked up and down outside uh, with placards shouting and screaming. On the second occasion that they did so, my wife went out to the door to confront them. She was six months pregnant. There was a shouting match, a load of ranting and raving. One of the people, neighbours in the street, came over and stood with my wife and told the crowd really to disperse and stop making fools of themselves, intimidating the pregnant woman. My wife went into hospital after that uh, with stress-induced infection. And they, they tried all this, and they, they attacked me at one stage in the street, physical attack. I mean, just some local thug. And these things, these things happen. They, they raise the campaign of ostracism. Uh, they undermined, they whispered, they smeared. They used people like Danny Morrison to try and uh, smear his uh, bad mouth. Who is that? Who is Danny Morrison? The uh, head of the propaganda uh, department within Sinn Féin. And uh, just basically a yes man. Uh, and I actually think he's worse than the public record of saying I think he's an agent of the British state. So we always have that sort of thing uh, used against us and, and thrown against us. Uh, you know, that we have undermined Republicans or we have, uh, I mean, we've told lies about Jerry Adams or we have got Jerry Adams arrested or all the usual rubbish and crap that these people come out with. Get into the Belfast tapes. This whole entire situation is written like a movie. Going back to 2001, what was the main goal of these tapes? Well, the main goal of the tapes was to increase the knowledge about republicanism. Myself uh, and Ed Maloney were uh, two people who had written extensively about republicanism. We were concerned that the type of uh, discourses, the type of narratives that could be procured for posterity were endangered and lost were, were we not to strike while the iron was hot. And that was mean trying to get people to speak while they, they, they were still alive rather than relying on any bits and pieces of papers that they may have left. When did the PSNI become interested in prosecuting? individuals from these tapes in 2011 after the book came out by Ed Maloney on the uh, Brent Hughes uh, Voices from the Great Brent Hughes and David Irwin but Ed Maloney had written many things similar in a previous book on, on the secret history of the IRA the PSNI decided that in my view that they would go for the Boston College tapes not because they were interested in solving Dean McConnell, McConnell's killing they weren't even interested in the woman for years they hadn't as much as sent out a police officer to talk to the family when the, when the, the mother was disappeared they knew that the past was coming up 
in many ways, and the past had not been resolved, and they're still fighting and arguing over this very day. And they felt that they wanted to have something which they could use for leverage in any future negotiations uh, with the Sinn Féin leadership in relation to the past. Let me just give a timeline real quick. So 1972, Jean McConville, she's a, a widow, 37, she's got 10 kids, converted Catholic. She's dragged out of her house in the middle of the night, never seen again. And 27 years go by and nobody knows what the hell happened. And then in 1999, the IRA formally comes out and says, yes, we did. We did kill her, but she was an informant. Then in 2003, this is so crazy. A guy walking his dog on the beach finds her body after a storm. So 2001, you guys start the Belfast tapes, you know, interviewing all these paramilitary groups from both sides for the archive that was to stay at Boston College. In 2008, Brandon Hughes, who was a top commander in the IRA, he dies. And he was very close with Jerry Adams. And Jerry Adams, he was basically the broker of the peace deal between the British and the, and the IRA in the Good Friday Agreement in, in 1998 with Bill Clinton, right? So Brandon Hughes dies. And you were friendly with Brandon Hughes, right? I was just— you, you actually were the one that interviewed him in these tapes. I was. That's right. The interviews that you did— were the star of Ed Maloney's book, Voices from the Grave, which came out in 2010. And in that book, there was a revelation that Brandon Hughes said on the tapes that Jerry Adams was the commander of the Belfast Brigade in Northern Ireland, and he was directly responsible for the hit squad known as the Unknown. The Unknown, yep. And they were the ones that dragged Jean McConville out of her house into the night and buried her. And they also did that with a lot of other people, and these people were known as the disappeared. So now what happens is the PSNI, the police service from Northern Ireland, in 2011, they launch a legal bid to get copies of the tapes from Boston College. And it's just this one tape that they wanted in regards to Gene McConville's murder. Fast forward to last year where Jerry Adams is actually detained for a number of hours or days in regards to this murder. And now what they're doing is they want all the tapes. Now, has the PSNI, do they have all the tapes? No, they don't have all the tapes, but they did make a bid. And the courts in America slapped them down. Uh, the, the First Circuit Court slapped them down. But the police were interested in an intelligence gathering exercise and just finding out what was in the tapes. And you see, the strange thing is, is that it, it's part of an attempt by the police to ensure that we don't have any truth recovery process about the past because people will not talk about the past while there's a threat of prosecutions. People will clam up, they go stumped. How did you get these people to be so honest with you when you were interviewing them? Well, I, I got them to talk. Why are not they were honest with me? It's another matter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you think some of them lied? I'm not saying that some of them lied, but I'm saying that some of them, their, their memories were, were certainly not the best. I, I know when I give the brand Hughes an order a lecture, uh, I had to correct some mistakes that Brenton had made uh, and uh, had been wrong about. So, I mean, there's always a problem with memory. Uh, I mean, I have experiences myself, which I, I know that memory can be unreliable. I can never find my keys. I'm just saying memory it can be very unreliable, particularly uh, as you get older. So you think some of what Brandon Hughes said might not be completely reliable? You see, when you're doing a secret project like that, 
there's serious problems with authentication. If a person tells you, say, that on the 1st of July, 1977, he shot dead a British soldier. Well, you can go and look at the paper and see if a British soldier was actually shot dead on that day. And if there was no British soldier shot dead on that day, you can say, well, uh, how come you done this when it didn't happen? There was no killing on that day. Whereas if the person tells you that they attended an army council meeting or they attended a Belfast Brigade staff meeting with, say, Jerry Adams, how do you go and uh, authenticate that? You can't go and ask Jerry Adams because then you're sort of uh, breaching the confidentiality. So these are all the dangers that are posed with an oral history project. Because of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, didn't that offer amnesty to all combatants? Well, uh, the spirit of it was, yes. Oh, but the law is a little different? The law was uh, slightly different to appease the, the, the political unionists who thought or at least pretended that they were really upset that the IRA people would be, not have to serve any time. So they reached some sort of agreement or understanding where if anybody was convicted, they would serve two years. Now, the problem is, as we argue, if the war is over, why is each side still seeking to take prisoners? Is it really over? I think that it's a very bad faith approach by the PSNI. The PSNI are up to their neck in cover-up, lying, dissembling, not investigating the killings that they should be investigating if they've been fair and even-handed, trying to criminalize people for their past actions and to legitimize the police and their past actions because they're trying to tote up the figures for Republican convictions and no police convictions. Never one police officer convicted of torture here, even though we know there was torture. I don't understand. Why is it such a big deal, like the leadership of Sinn Féin, for them to come out and just say, hey, there are factions that we don't control? Sinn Féin said it's no longer an IRA. <clears throat> and, uh, but nobody believes him. And just as Sinn Féin and Jerry Adams says, he was never in the IRA. And people don't believe that either. And Sinn Féin have always denied IRA involvement in A, B, and C. And because nobody believes that, I mean, it's, one of the journalists once wrote, someday Sinn Féin will tell the truth about something and there'll be nobody there to believe him. Well, so what is the relationship with Jerry Adams? You've been very critical of him. Well, I mean, I, I think that Jerry Adams has used the peace process to enhance his political career at the expense of all else. I, I don't think that Jerry Adams has any sort of democratic sentiment. He's an authoritarian leader. I, I made the comment that when the first uh, executive was set up and there was an agreement between the DUP and the Sinn Féin, that we had two parties, one led by a theocrat and the other led by an autocrat. What possible democratic outcome could emerge from that? What is your relationship with Boston College now? So what kind of legal assurances did they give you back in 2001 that these tapes were going to remain confidential? I mean, at the very start, the whole process was actually delayed getting off the ground because they were uncertain about the, the, the confidentiality issue. But we have always said, for people who do not accept our version or our narrative of, how, of the confidentiality surrounding this project, all they need to do is ask the loyalists because the unlike the IRA leadership, which the IRA leadership did not approve this project, they had had to be kept in the dark. The UVF leadership agreed, and the UVF leadership met Boston College staff, and Boston College staff told UVF leadership 
under no circumstances will or can this project be violated by court order, subpoena, or anything else. So they even went much further and were much more explicit in their descriptions to the loyalists and their undertakings and promises. Both sides were interviewed in these tapes. The UVF, that's referring to a paramilitary group that was unionist, that was pro-British. And you, of course, did the interviews with the IRA members, so it wasn't just one side or the other. Now, do you think there was a setup from the beginning? No, I, I don't think it was a setup from the beginning. Uh... I mean, that the possibility must have went through your mind, though. And no, it has went through the mind of other people, but I had no evidence to, to suggest that it was a setup from the beginning. Uh, at four o'clock in the morning, when we wake up in a, a cold sweat and about how it all went wrong and think, was it this, that, or At the end of the day, I don't have them thoughts. I, I, I just don't believe that there's no evidence to suggest that Boston Collies were engaged in a setup. I think that what they did do was that they got involved in a project which they thought would produce for them a handsome dividend in terms of cutting-edge research, and they took chances and were dishonest in the, the way they explained it. Uh, and they've been caught out, particularly through Jack Dunn. They've been caught lying through their teeth. Who's that? Jack Dunn's a PR the person for Boston College at the public publicity man. He's told he I mean he's told that many lies that his nose must be longer than Pinocchio's. <laughs> so when you found out that the PSNI was getting these tapes, I mean, what was going through your mind? Were you like, oh no, oh shit? Terrible. Uh, I mean, absolute despair. Probably the most depressing period of my life. My wife, my family suffered terribly as a result of it too. Uh, my wife put in enormous efforts in, in getting the Boston Kelly's project up and running. She ended up seriously depressed as, uh, as a result of it. She didn't have any say the project. She, the website she was involved in, she got that website up and running, uh, which became a major resource for scholars and journalists and academics and researchers who wanted to get to the bottom of the Boston College project. And I suppose in many ways, had it not have been for that uh, site that she set up, Jack Dunn may have got away with spoofing and spinning. And, uh, you know, it was a horrible situation because the, the first objective of any researcher has to be that they must ensure that no harm accrues to the research participants. Yeah, their sources. For, yes, their sources. Fortunately, we weren't able to, to protect our, our people from that. And it's the worst sort of situation because you can feel impotent you can feel helpless i mean there's nothing you can do that's the thing i mean you gave your word but you were counting on someone else keeping theirs that being boston college and they haven't we give boston college an opportunity and told them give them advice after the first subpoena went through for brenton hughes and dollars prices tapes that the police would come back they would look at second subpoena and for Boston College to take measures to immediately safeguard an endangered archive, Boston College told us, again told us lies. They said that they had consulted with people who were formerly trained in international law, and they told us this in writing, so they therefore cannot do that. And they says that there would be no second subpoena, that the British couldn't do this. Now, anybody who is a formerly trained international law has to know that that is rubbish. They did not pursue the question of confidentiality in the way that they should have with their legal team, even though they had told Ed Maloney that they were doing it and he had insisted that they do it before they send anything back to us telling us that the project was on the go. So when, you, when are you suing them? <laughs> well, they, there's a court case ongoing at the minute. Richard O'Raw has taken a court case against them. Who's that? Richard, Richard O'Raw is a man who was interviewed 
and Boston Kelly's handed his interviews all back to the police. I mean, there was absolutely nothing in his interviews that referred to Gene McConville, nothing of any evidential value, anything that was an opinion. It could have been you and me talking and you give an opinion, and yet these were still handed over. So Boston Kelly's have been sued on breach of contract. Why do you think the PSNI is doing this? PSNI, in my view, there's a mixture of motives. I mean, at one level within the PSNI, we have old Billy the Bigot, who still wants to settle scores with Jerry Adams, and uh, some southern redneck Baptist is going to persecute everybody who doesn't believe in his version of God. So you think there's a lot of political play going on here. It's not just an objective investigation. The police are not interested in objective investigation. There's certain elements within the police don't want anything to do with the investigation. I mean, we know that. The problem is that the police only pursue an evidential trails that do not lead back to the state. If an evidential trail leads back to the state, the police don't go near it. They try to avoid it. You mean like former British troops? Yes, who are guilty of murder, who are guilty of collusion, who are guilty of torture, who are guilty of war crimes. I mean, for example, they've now stopped the inquiry into the Bloody Sunday, and I think of what they're doing through the prosecutions, and more so at the political level, at the level of the Home Office, at the senior levels of the British security establishment, what they are trying to do is use leverage in respect of the past. And they're saying to key figures in the Republican movement and the provisional movement, if you investigate us about the past, there's going to be a terrible sting in the tail for you. So where do you think the struggle is now? It's not going anywhere. The Republican struggle is over. Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness and Sinn Féin have accepted the legitimacy of the state. There is no Republican struggle worth talking about, and the North will continue to remain part of the British state administrative apparatus for the long-term future. What do you think the struggle needs to go? I think that Republicans need to stop thinking about the meta-narrative of Republicanism and the, 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 the sort of mythical attainment of an Irish Republic. It's not going to happen. There is no Republican strategy for, for uniting Ireland. There is no Republican strategy for overcoming the, the problems of protection. But Republicans can do quite a lot of uh, radical things. They can still be an anti-systemic force that's capable of exposing and perhaps calling to account uh, the powers that be on uh, the British state. Are you scared for your life at all? You're really making a lot of powerful people angry. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't get scared from my life, but I've always felt that there, there, there is a danger. I mean, I think the Boston College uh, tips uh, did enhance the uh, level of threat against us. I always feel that, uh, I mean, there's a threat there. I never feel entirely comfortable. But at the same time, if you live at the bottom of the sea long enough and you, you cease to notice the pressure, you just adjust. Where are you going to go from here? Can you travel? I can't travel north. I can't travel to the UK because I'm under threat of arrest over the Boston College case. I'm barred from, uh, officially barred from America, officially barred from Canada. I can't travel to Australia because I will be officially barred. I can travel to Europe, but I, I haven't traveled. I've traveled once to Portugal since the Boston College case. Uh, well, since last year when I've been told not to travel. Uh, that, that the police will arrest. So uh, I, I'm limited in what I can do. So you're still under the threat of arrest by the PSNI? Yeah, I've been told it's real. The PSNI haven't told me the people who have spoken to the PSNI 
and they have interpreted it as been real. The PSNI and I sent the guards down here to question me in relation to the Boston Killers tapes. I refused to answer any questions. The solicitors involved in the North who gave me advice and told me, don't go North, they will arrest you. So just hang tight. Wait, or wait till they, they shoot themselves in the foot because they probably will in the end. Well, my wife went over to the States. She got escorted off the plane, so she has been hassled. Uh, Whoa, really? Yeah, basically letting her know that uh, we're, we're on to you. You know, if you're out here trying to uh, raise issues about Boston College, we know, basically. Who said that in America? Immigration customs at the behest of the British. How long did they detain your wife for? Yeah, I think an hour or two uh, on the airport and asked her a number of questions what she was in for. My wife's an American citizen. She's an American passport. Yeah, she's visiting family in uh, LA. That's just ridiculous hassling. Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, and he died in 1984, but he long ago described the monster and called it the panopticon and said we're living in a surveillance society. And- oh, it's it's completely true. And you know what the scary thing, a lot of people use the excuse of, um, well, if you have nothing to hide, then you shouldn't worry. But you know who said that? Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And I think that's the same. You know, this is the thing. The state will always tell you this. Uh, but you see, that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry means that the state has no concept of privacy. It's not about having nothing to hate. It's having the right to a private sphere that cannot be invaded by the arbitrary power of the state. It's not the now that I'm worried about. It's 50 years down the line when you have a charismatic leader that comes out of nowhere and begins to use the precedents that's set today for his own advantage in his own personal life. As will surely happen. And that's what I'm more scared of than anything. And it's only going to get worse. The technology is going to get better. It's going to become much more invasive. Democracy is is not a one-lane highway. It's very important to have people like you speak up and continue doing what you do. Civil disobedience is such an important part of society. Well, you see, one of the things is that we always see that even though it's called free speech, free speech, the tongue is actually the eye of society. It's the way we are able to view society its promises, its limitations, the gap between what is practiced and what is preached. If we do not have free speech, we will never be able, and free inquiry, we will never be able to evaluate how far we have progressed. So our means of challenging the surveillance is a counter-surveillance, the surveillance of free speech, that we want discourse everywhere. We want people to be able to give opinions and as many of them as possible. I remember the writer Philip Gurevich saying that one of the problems with Rwanda is that when, uh, because there was only one source of information, the radio, and it was a centralized hierarchical society, Hutu power leaders from Radio Hate could send out messages, go out and kill your neighbor, and people immediately did it. He says, if you're living in New York and somebody get on the radio and says, go out and kill your neighbor, the New Yorkers would say, eh, that fucking head kiss. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, because they had a multiplicity of sources for news uh, and information. And this is very, very important that we hear all these voices. And we'll stop right there. Jimsville Podcast is available on Stitcher, on iTunes, and naturally on SoundCloud. If you like this, please share with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. This is Jim. Peace.